This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 19 Two or three days and nights went by. I reckon I might say they swum by. They slid along so quiet and smooth and lovely. Here is the way we put in the time. It was a monstrous big river down there, sometimes a mile and a half wide. We run nights and laid up and hid daytimes. Soon as night was most gone, we stopped navigating and tied up, nearly always in the dead water under a towhead, and then cut young cottonwoods and willows and hid the raft with them. Then we set out the lines. Next we slid into the river and had a swim so as to freshen up and cool off. Then we sat down on the sandy bottom where the water was about knee-deep and watched the daylight come. Not a sound anywheres, perfectly still, just like the whole world was asleep, only sometimes the bullfrogs a-cluttering maybe. The first thing to see, looking away over the water, was a kind of dull line. That was the woods on t'other side. You couldn't make nothing else out. Then a pale place in the sky. Then more paleness spreading around. Then the river softened up a way off and weren't black anymore, but gray. You could see little dark spots drifting along ever so far away, trading scows and such things, and long black streaks, rafts. Sometimes you could hear a sweep squeaking or jumbled up voices. It was so still and sounds come so far. And by and by you could see a streak on the water, which you know by the look of the streak that there's a snag there and a swift current which breaks on it and makes that streak look that way. And you see the mist curl up off of the water, and the east reddens up, and the river, and you make out a log cabin in the edge of the woods, away on the bank on t'other side of the river, being a wood yard, likely, and piled by them cheats so you can throw a dog through it anywheres. Then the nice breeze springs up, and comes fanning you from over there, so cool and fresh and sweet to smell on account of the woods and the flowers, but sometimes not that way, because they've left dead fish laying around, gars and such, and they do get pretty rank, and next you've got the full day, and everything's smiling in the sun, and the songbirds just go in it. A little smoke couldn't be noticed now, so we would take some fish off of the lines and cook up a hot breakfast, and afterwards we would watch the lonesomeness of the river, and kind of lazy along, and by and by lazy off to sleep, wake up by and by, and look to see what done it, and maybe see a steamboat coughing along upstream, so far off towards the other side, you couldn't tell nothing about her, only whether she was a stern wheel or side wheel. Then for about an hour, there wouldn't be nothing to hear, nor nothing to see, just solid lonesomeness. Next you'd see a raft sliding by, away off yonder, and maybe a galoot on it chopping, because they're most always doing it on a raft. You'd see the axe flash and come down. You don't hear nothing. You see the axe go up again, and by the time it's above the man's head, then you hear the kachunk. It had took all that time to come over the water. So we would put in the day, lazying around, listening to the stillness. Once there was a thick fog, and the rafts and things that went by was beating tin pans so the steamboats wouldn't run over them. A scow or a raft went by so close, we could hear them talking and cussing and laughing. Heard them playing, but we couldn't see no sign of them. It made you feel crawly. It was like spirits carrying on that way in the air. Jim said he believed it was spirits, but I says, No, spirits wouldn't say, Dern the dern fog. 
Soon as it was night out, we shoved. When we got her out to about the middle, we let her alone and let her float wherever the current wanted her to go. Then we lit the pipes and dangled our legs in the water and talked about all kinds of things. We was always naked day and night whenever the mosquitoes would let us. The new clothes Buck's folks made for me was too good to be comfortable, and besides, I didn't go much on clothes nohow. Sometimes we'd have the whole river all to ourselves for the longest time. Yonder was the banks and the islands across the water, and maybe a spark, which was a candle in a cabin window, and sometimes on the water you could see a spark or two, on a raft or a scow, you know, and maybe you could hear a fiddle or a song coming over from one of them crafts. It's lovely to live on a raft. We had the sky up there, all speckled with stars, and we used to lay on our backs and look up at them and discuss about whether they was made or only just happened. Jim, he allowed they was made, but I allowed they happened. I judged it would have took too long to make so many. Jim said the moon could have laid them. Well, that looked kind of reasonable, so I didn't say nothing against it, because I've seen a frog lay most as many, so of course it could be done. We used to watch the stars that fell, too, and see them streak down. Jim allowed they got spoiled and was hove out of the nest. Once or twice of a night, we would see a steamboat slipping along in the dark, and now and then she would belch a whole world of sparks up out of her chimbleys, and they would rain down in the river and look awful pretty. Then she would turn a corner and her lights would wink out and her powwow shut off and leave the river still again. And by and by her waves would get to us, a long time after she was gone, and joggle the raft a bit, and after that you wouldn't hear nothing for you couldn't tell how long, except maybe frogs or something. After midnight the people on shore went to bed, and then for two or three hours the shores was black, no more sparks in the cabin windows. These sparks was our clock. The first one that showed again meant morning was coming, so we hunted a place to hide and tie up right away. One morning about daybreak I found a canoe, and crossed over a chute to the main shore. It was only two hundred yards, and paddled about a mile up a creek amongst the cypress woods to see if I couldn't get some berries. Just as I was passing a place where a kind of a cow path crossed the creek, here comes a couple of men tearing up the path as tight as they could foot it. I thought I was a goner, for whenever anybody was after anybody, I judged it was me, or maybe Jim. I was about to dig out from there in a hurry, but they was pretty close to me then and sung out and begged me to save their lives. Said they hadn't been doing nothing and was being chased for it. Said there was men and dogs a-coming. They wanted to jump right in, but I says, Don't you do it. I don't hear the dogs and the horses yet. You've got time to crowd through the brush and get up the crick a little ways. Then you take to the water and wade down to me and get in. That'll throw the dogs off the scent. They done it. And soon as they was aboard, I lit out for our towhead. And in about five or ten minutes, we heard the dogs and the men away off shouting. We heard them come along towards the creek, but couldn't see them. They seemed to stop and fool around a while. Then as we got further and further away all the time, we couldn't hardly hear them at all. By the time we had left a mile of woods behind us and struck the river, everything was quiet. And we paddled over to the towhead and hid in the cottonwoods and was safe. One of these fellows was about seventy or upwards and had a bald head and very gray whiskers. He had an old battered-up slouch hat on, and a greasy blue woolen shirt, and ragged old blue jeans breeches stuffed into his boot tops, and home-knit galusses. No, he only had one. He had an old long-tailed blue jeans coat, with slick brass buttons flung over his arm, 
and both of them had big, fat, ratty-looking carpet bags. The other fellow was about thirty, and dressed about as ornery. After breakfast, we all laid off and talked. The first thing that come out was that these chaps didn't know one another. "'What got you into trouble?' says the bald head to t'other chap. "'Well, I'd been selling an article to take the tartar off the teeth, and it does take it off, too, and generally the enamel along with it. But I stayed about one night longer than I ought to, and was just in the act of sliding out when I ran across you on the trail this side of town, and you told me they were coming, and begged me to help you to get off. So I told you I was expecting trouble myself, and would scatter out with you. That's the whole yarn. What's yourn? Well, I'd been running a little temperance revival there about a week, and was the pet of the women folks, big and little, for I was making it mighty warm for the rummies, I tell you, and taking as much as five or six dollars a night, ten cents a head, children and niggers free, and business a-growing all the time, when somehow or another a little report got around last night that I had a way of putting in my time with a private jug on the sly. A nigger rousted me out this morning and told me the people was gathering on the quiet with their dogs and horses, and they'd be along pretty soon and give me about half an hour's start, and then run me down if they could, and if they got me, they'd tar and feather me and ride me on a rail, sure. I didn't wait for no breakfast. I weren't hungry. Old man, said the young one, I reckon we might double-team it together. What do you think? I ain't undisposed. What's your line, mainly? Your printer by trade. Do a little in patent medicines. And theater actor. Tragedy, you know. Take a turn to mesmerism and phrenology when there's a chance. Teach singing. Geography school for a change. And sling a lecture sometimes. Oh, I do lots of things. Most anything that comes handy so it ain't work. What's your lay? I've done considerable in the doctoring way in my time. Laying on a hands is my best holt for cancer and paralysis and such things. And I can tell a fortune pretty good when I've got somebody along to find out the facts for me. Preaching's my line, too, and working camp meetings and missionarying around. Nobody never said anything for a while. Then the young man hove a sigh and says, <sighs> Alas, what you lassin' about? says the bald head. To think I should have lived to be leading such a life and be degraded down to such company. And he begun to wipe the corner of his eye with a rag. Dern your skin! Ain't the company good enough for you? says the bald head, pretty pert and uppish. Yes, it is good enough for me. It's as good as I deserve. For who fetched me so low when I was so high? I did myself. I don't blame you, gentlemen far from it. I don't blame anybody. I deserve it all. Let the cold world do its worst. One thing I know, there's a grave somewhere for me. The world may go on just as it always done, and take everything from me. Loved ones, property, everything. But it can't take that. Some day I'll lie down in it and forget it all, and my poor broken heart will be at rest. He went on a wiping. Drot your poor broken heart, says the bald head. What are you heaving your poor broken heart at us for? We ain't done nothing. No, I know you haven't. I ain't a-blaming you, gentlemen. I brought myself down. Yes, I did it myself. It's right I should suffer. Perfectly right. I don't make any moan. Brought you down from where? Where was you brought down from? Ah, uh, 
you would not believe me. The world never believes. Let it pass. Tis no matter. The secret of my birth. The secret of your birth? Do you mean to say? Gentlemen, says the young man, very solemn. I will reveal it to you, for I feel I may have confidence in you. By rights, I am a duke. Jim's eyes bugged out when he heard that, and I reckon mine did too. Then the bald head says, No, you can't mean it. Yes, my great-grandfather, eldest son of the Duke of Bridgewater, fled to this country about the end of the last century to breathe the pure air of freedom, married here and died, leaving a son, his own father dying about the same time. The second son of the late Duke seized the titles and estates. The infant real Duke was ignored. I am the lineal descent of that infant. I am the rightful Duke of Bridgewater, and here am I forlorn, torn from my high estate, hunted of men, despised by the cold world, ragged, worn, heartbroken, and degraded to the companionship of felons on a raft. Jim pitied him ever so much, and so did I. We tried to comfort him, but he said it weren't much use. He couldn't be much comforted, said if we was a mind to acknowledge him, that would do him more good than most anything else. So we said we would if he would tell us how. He said we ought to bow when we spoke to him and say, Your Grace, or My Lord, or Your Lordship. And he wouldn't mind if we called him plain Bridgewater, which he said was a title anyway and not a name. And one of us ought to wait on him at dinner and do any little thing for him he wanted done. Well, that was all easy, so we done it. All through dinner Jim stood around and waited on him and said, Will your grace have some of this or some of that? And so on. And a body could see it was mighty pleasing to him. But the old man got pretty silent by and by, and didn't have much to say, and didn't look pretty comfortable over all that petting that was going on around that duke. He seemed to have something on his mind. So along in the afternoon he says, Looky here, Bilgewater, he says. I'm nation sorry for you, but you ain't the only person that's had troubles like that. No? No, you ain't. You ain't the only person that's been snaked down wrongfully out in a high place. Alas, no. You ain't the only person that's had a secret of his birth. And by jings, he begins to cry. Hold, what do you mean? Bilgewater, can I trust you? Says the old man, sort of sobbing. To the bitter death... He took the old man by the hand and squeezed it and says, That secret of your being, speak. Bilgewater, I am the late Dolphin. You bet you Jim and me stared this time. Then the Duke says, You are what? Yes, my friend, it is true. Your eyes is looking at this very moment on the poor disappeared Dolphin, Louis the Seventeen, son of Louis the Sixteen and Marie Antoinette. You? At your age? No. You mean you're the late Charlemagne. You must be six or seven hundred years old at the very least. Trouble has done it, Bilgewater. Trouble has done it. Trouble has brung these gray hairs and this premature baldatude. Yes, gentlemen, you see before you, in blue jeans and misery, the wandering, exiled, trampled on, and suffering rightful king of France. Well, he cried and took on so that me and Jim didn't know hardly what to do, we was so sorry, 
and so glad and proud we got him with us too. So we set in like we done before with the duke, and tried to comfort him. But he said it weren't no use. Nothing but to be dead and done with it all could do him any good. Though he said it often made him feel easier and better for a while if people treated him according to his rights, and got down on one knee to speak to him and always called him Your Majesty, and waited on him first at meals, and didn't set down in his presence till he asked them. So Jim and me set to majestying him, and doing this and that and t'other for him, and standing up till he told us we might set down. This done him heaps of good, and so he got cheerful and comfortable. But the duke kind of soured on him and didn't look a bit satisfied with the way things was going. Still, the king acted real friendly towards him, and said the duke's great-grandfather and all the other dukes of Bilgewater was a good deal thought of by his father and was allowed to come to the palace considerable. But the duke stayed huffy a good while, till by and by the king says, Like as not, we gotta be together a blamed long time on this here raft, Bilgewater, and so what's the use of your being sour? It'll only make things uncomfortable. It ain't my fault I weren't born a duke. It ain't your fault you weren't born a king. So what's the use to worry? Make the best of things the way you find them, says I. That's my motto. This ain't no bad thing that we've struck here. Plenty grub and an easy life. Come, give us your hand, Duke, and let's all be friends. The Duke done it, and Jim and me was pretty glad to see it. It took away all the uncomfortableness, and we felt mighty good over it, because it would have been a miserable business to have any unfriendliness on the raft. For what you want, above all things, on a raft is for everybody to be satisfied and feel right and kind towards the others. It didn't take me long to make up my mind that these liars weren't no kings nor dukes at all, but just low-down humbugs and frauds. But I never said nothing, never let on, kept it to myself. It's the best way. Then you don't have no quarrels and don't get into no trouble. If they wanted us to call them kings and dukes, I had no objections, long as it would keep peace in the family, and it weren't no use to tell Jim, so I didn't tell him. If I never learned nothing else out of Pap, I learned that the best way to get along with his kind of people is to let them have their own way. Chapter 20 They asked us considerable many questions, and wanted to know what we covered up the raft that way for, and laid by in the daytime instead of running. Was Jim a runaway nigger? Says I. Goodness sakes! Would a runaway nigger run south? No, they allowed he wouldn't. I had to account for things some way, so I says, My folks was living in Pike County, in Missouri, where I was born, and they all died off but me and Pap and my brother Ike. And Pa, he allowed he'd break up and go down and live with Uncle Ben, who's got a little one-horse place on the river 44 mile below Orleans. Pa was pretty poor and had some debts, so when he'd squared up, there weren't nothing left but sixteen dollars in our nigger Jim. That weren't enough to take us fourteen hundred mile, deck passage nor no other way. Well, when the river rose, Pa had a streak of luck one day. He catched this piece of a raft, so we reckoned we'd go down to Orleans on it. Pa's luck didn't hold out. A steamboat run over the forward corner of the raft one night, and we all went overboard and dove under the wheel. Jim and me come up all right, but Pa was drunk and Ike was only four years old, so they never come up no more. Well, for the next day or two, we had considerable trouble because people was always coming out in skiffs and trying to take Jim away from me, saying they believed he was a runaway nigger. We don't run daytimes no more now, 
Knights don't bother us. The Duke says, Leave me alone to cipher out a way so we can run in the daytimes if we want to. I'll think the thing over. I'll invent a plan that'll fix it. We'll let it alone for today, because, of course, we don't want to go by that town yonder in daylight. It mightn't be healthy. Towards night, it begun to darken up and look like rain. The heat lightning was squirting around low down in the sky, and the leaves was beginning to shiver. It was going to be pretty ugly. It was easy to see that. So the duke and the king went to overhauling our wigwam to see what the beds was like. My bed was a straw tick, better than Jim's, which was a corn shuck tick. There's always cobs around about it in a shuck tick, and they poke into you and hurt, and when you roll over, the dry shucks sound like you was rolling over in a pile of dead leaves. It makes such a rustling that you wake up. Well, the duke allowed he would take my bed, but the king allowed he wouldn't. He says, I should reckon the difference in rank would have suggested to you that a corn shuck bed weren't just fitting for me to sleep on. Your grace'll take the shuck bed yourself. Jim and me was in a sweat again for a minute, being afraid there was going to be some more trouble amongst them. So we was pretty glad when the duke says, "'Tis my fate to be always ground into the mire under the iron heel of oppression. Misfortune has broken my once haughty spirit. I yield, I submit. Tis my fate. I am alone in the world. Let me suffer. I can bear it. We got away as soon as it was good and dark. The king told us to stand well out towards the middle of the river and not show a light till we got long ways below the town. We come inside of the little bunch of lights by and by, that was the town, you know, and slid by, about a half a mile out, all right. When we was three quarters of a mile below, we hoisted up our signal lantern, and about ten o'clock it come on to rain and blow and thunder and lighten like everything. So the king told us to both stay on watch till the weather got better. Then him and the duke crawled into the wigwam and turned in for the night. It was my watch below till twelve, but I wouldn't have turned in anyway if I'd have had a bed, because a body don't see such a storm as that every day in the week. Not by a long sight. My souls, how the wind did scream along. And every second or two there'd come a glare that lit up the whitecaps for a half a mile around. And you'd see the islands looking dusty through the rain and the trees thrashing around the wind. Then comes a whack. Bum, 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 bum. And the thunder would go rumbling and grumbling away and quit. And then rip comes another flash and another sock dollager. The waves most washed me off the raft sometimes, but I hadn't any clothes on and didn't mind. We didn't have no trouble about snags. The lightning was glaring and flittering around so constant that we could see them pretty soon enough to throw her head this way or that and miss them. I had the middle watch, you know, but I was pretty sleepy by that time, so Jim, he said he would stand the first half of it for me. He was always mighty good that way, Jim was. I crawled into the wigwam, but the king and the duke had their legs sprawled around, so there weren't no show for me. So I laid outside. I didn't mind the rain, because it was warm, and the waves weren't running so high now. About two, they come up again, though, and Jim was going to call me, but he changed his mind because he reckoned they weren't high enough yet to do any harm. But he was mistaken about that, for pretty soon, all of a sudden, along comes a regular ripper and washed me overboard. It most killed Jim a-laughing. He was the easiest nigger to laugh that ever was, anyway. I took the watch, and Jim, he laid down and snored away, and by and by the storm let up for good and all, and the first cabin light that showed, I rousted him out, and we slid the raft into hiding quarters for the day. 
The king got out an old ratty deck of cards after breakfast, and him and the duke played seven up a while, five cents a game. Then they got tired of it and allowed they would lay out a campaign, as they called it. The duke went down into his carpet bag and fetched up a lot of little printed bills and read them out loud. One bill said, The celebrated Dr. Armand de Montalban of Paris would lecture on the science of phrenology at such and such a place on the blank day of blank at ten cents admission and furnish charts of character at twenty-five cents apiece. The duke said that was him. In another bill, he was the world-renowned Shakespearean tragedian Garrick the Younger of Drury Lane, London. In other bills, he had a lot of other names and done other wonderful things, like finding water and gold with a divining rod, dissipating witch spells, and so on. By and by, he says, But the histrionic muse is the darling. Have you ever trod the boards, royalty? No, says the king. You shall, then, before you're three days older, fallen grandeur says the duke. The first good town we come to, we'll hire a hall and do the sword fight in Richard the Third, and the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet. How does that strike you? I'm in up to the hub for anything that'll pay, Bilgewater. But you see, I don't know nothing about play acting. I ain't ever seen much of it. I was too small when Pap used to have him at the palace. Do you reckon you can learn me? Easy. All right. I'm just a freezing for something fresh anyway. Let's commence right away. So the Duke, he told them all about who Romeo was and who Juliet was and said he was used to being Romeo so the king could be Juliet. But if Juliet's such a young gal, Duke, my peeled head and my white whiskers is gonna look uncommon odd on her, maybe. No, don't you worry. These country janks won't ever think of that. Besides, you know, you'll be in costume and that makes all the difference in the world. Juliet's in a balcony, enjoying the moonlight before she goes to bed, and she's got on her nightgown and a ruffled nightcap. Here are the costumes for the parts. He got out two or three curtain calico suits, which he said was medieval armor for Richard III, and t'other chap, and a long white cotton nightshirt and a ruffled nightcap to match. The king was satisfied, so the duke got out his book and read the parts over in the most splendid spread-eagle way, prancing around and acting at the same time, to show how it had got to be done. Then he gave the book to the king and told him to get his part by heart. There was a little one-horse town about three mile down the bend, and after dinner the duke said he had ciphered out his idea about how to run in daytime without it being dangerous for Jim, so he allowed he would go down to the town and fix that thing. The king allowed he would go too and see if he couldn't strike something. We was out of coffee, so Jim said I better go along with them in the canoe and get some. When we got there, there weren't nobody stirring, streets empty and perfectly dead still like Sunday. We found a sick nigger sunning himself in a backyard, and he said everybody that weren't too young or too sick or too old was gone to camp meeting about two mile back in the woods. The king got the directions and allowed he'd go and work that camp meeting for all it was worth, and I might go too. The duke said what he was after was a printing office. We found it, a little bit of a concern up over a carpenter shop, Carpenters and printers all gone to the meeting, and no doors locked. It was a dirty, littered-up place, and had ink marks and handbills with pictures of horses and runaway niggers on them, all over the walls. The duke shed his coat and said he was all right now, so me and the king lit out for the camp meeting. We got there in about a half an hour, fairly dripping, for it was a most awful hot day. 
There was as much as a thousand people there from twenty mile around. The woods was full of teams and wagons, hitched everywheres, feeding out of the wagon troughs and stomping to keep off the flies. There were sheds made out of poles and roofed over with branches, where they had lemonade and gingerbread to sell, and piles of watermelons and green cord and such like truck. The preaching was going on under the same kinds of sheds, only they was bigger and held crowds of people. The benches was made out of outside slabs of logs, with holes bored in the round side to drive sticks into for legs. They didn't have no backs. The preachers had high platforms to stand on at one end of the sheds. The women had on sunbonnets, and some had linsey woolsey frocks, some gingham ones, and a few of the young ones had on calico. Some of the young men was barefooted, and some of the children didn't have on any clothes but just a toe-linen shirt. Some of the old women was knitting, and some of the young folks was courting on the sly. The first shed we come to, the preacher was lining out a hymn. He lined out two lines. Everybody sung it, and it was kind of grand to hear it. There was so many of them, and they done it in such a rousing way. Then he lined out two more for them to sing, and so on. The people woke up more and more, and sung louder and louder, and towards the end some begun to groan, and some begun to shout. Then the preacher begun to preach, and begun in earnest, too, and went weaving first to one side of the platform, and then the other, and then a-leaning down over the front of it with his arms and his body going all the time, and shouting his words out with all his might, and every now and then he would hold up his Bible and spread it open, and kind of pass it around this way and that, shouting, It's the brazen serpent in the wilderness! Look upon it and live! And the people would shout out, Glory! Amen! And so he went on, and the people groaning and crying and saying, Amen! Oh, come to the mourner's bench! Come black with sin! Amen! Come sick and sore! Amen! Come lame and halt and blind! Amen! Come poor and needy, sunk in shame! Amen! Come all that's worn and soiled and suffering! Come with a broken spirit! Come with a contrite heart! Come in your rags and sin and dirt! The waters that cleanse is free! The door of heaven stands open! Oh, enter in and be at rest! Amen! Glory, glory, hallelujah! And so on. You couldn't make out what the preacher said any more, on account of the shouting and crying. Folks got up everywheres in the crowd, and worked their way just by main strength to the mourners' bench, with the tears running down their faces. And when all the mourners had got up there to the front benches in the crowd, they sung and shouted and flung themselves down on the straw, just crazy and wild. Well, the first I knowed, the king got a-going, and you could hear him over everybody. And next he went a-charging up onto the platform, and the preacher he begged him to speak to the people, and he done it. He told them he was a pirate, been a pirate for thirty years out in the Indian Ocean, and his crew was thinned out considerable last spring in a fight, and he was home now to take out some fresh men, and thanks to goodness he'd been robbed last night and put ashore off of a steamboat without a cent, and he was glad of it. It was the blessedest thing that ever happened to him, because he was a changed man now, and happy for the first time in his life. And, poor as he was, he was going to start right off and work his way back to the Indian Ocean, and put in the rest of his life trying to turn the pirates into the true path, for he could do it better than anybody else, being acquainted with all pirate crews in that ocean. And though it would take him a long time to get there without money, he would get there anyway, 
and every time he convinced a pirate, he would say to him, Don't you thank me. Don't you give me no credit. It all belongs to them dear people in Polkville Camp Meeting, natural brothers and benefactors of the race, and that dear preacher there, the truest friend a pirate ever had. And then he busted into tears, and so did everybody. Then somebody sings out, Take up a collection for him. Take up a collection. Well, a half a dozen made a jump to do it, but somebody sings out, Let him pass the hat around. Then everybody said it, the preacher too. So the king went all through the crowd with his hat swabbing his eyes, and blessing the people and praising them and thanking them for being so good to the poor pirates away off there. And every little while, the prettiest kind of girls, with the tears running down their cheeks, would up and ask him would he let them kiss him for to remember him by, and he always done it. And some of them he hugged and kissed as many as five or six times, and he was invited to stay a week. And everybody wanted him to live in their houses, and said they'd think it was an honor. But he said, as this was the last day of the camp meeting, he couldn't do no good. And besides, he was in a sweat to get to the Indian Ocean right off and go to work on the pirates. When we got back to the raft, and he come to count up, he found he had collected $87.75. And then he had fetched away a three-gallon jug of whiskey, too, that he found under a wagon when he was starting home through the woods. The king said, take it all around. It laid over any day he'd ever put in, in the missionarying line. He said it weren't no use talking. Heathens don't amount to shucks alongside of pirates to work a camp meeting with. The duke was thinking he'd been doing pretty well till the king come to show up, but after that he didn't think so so much. He had set up and printed off two little jobs for farmers in that printing office, horse bills, and took the money, four dollars. And he had got in ten dollars worth of advertisements for the paper, which he said he would put in for four dollars if they would pay in advance, so they done it. The price of the paper was two dollars a year, but he took in three subscriptions for half a dollar apiece on condition of them paying him in advance. They were going to pay him in cordwood and onions as usual, but he said he had just bought the concern and knocked down the price as low as he could afford it and was going to run it for cash. He set up a little piece of poetry, which he made himself out of his own head, three verses, kind of sweet and saddish. The name of it was, Yes, Crush, Cold World, This Breaking Heart and he left that all set up and ready to print in the paper and didn't charge nothing for it. Well, he took in nine dollars and a half and said he'd done a pretty square day's work for it. Then he showed us another little job he'd printed and hadn't charged for because it was for us. It had a picture of a runaway nigger with a bundle on a stick over his shoulder and two hundred dollar reward under it. The reading was all about Jim and just described him to a dot. It said he run away from St. Jacques' Plantation, 40 miles below New Orleans, last winter, and likely went north, and whoever would catch him and send him back, he could have the reward and expenses. Now, says the Duke, after tonight, we can run in the daytime if we want to. Whenever we see anybody coming, we can tie Jim hand and foot with a rope, and lay him in the wigwam, and show this handbill and say we captured him up the river, and were too poor to travel on a steamboat, so we got this little raft on credit from our friends and are going down to get the reward. Handcuffs and chains would look still better on Jim, but it wouldn't go well with the story of us being so poor. Too much like jewelry. Ropes are the correct thing. We must preserve the unities, as we say on the boards. We all said the Duke was pretty smart, and there couldn't be no trouble about running daytimes. 
We judged we could make miles enough that night to get out of reach of the powwow we reckoned the Duke's work in the printing office was going to make in that little town. Then we could boom right along if we wanted to. We laid low and kept still, and never shoved out till nearly ten o'clock. Then we slid by, pretty wide away from the town, and didn't hoist our lantern until we was clear out of sight of it. When Jim called me to take the watch at four in the morning, he says, Huck, did you reckon we gwana run across any more kings on this trip? No, I says. I reckon not. Well, says he, that's all right then. I don't mind one or two kings, but that's enough. This one's powerful drunk, and the Duke ain't much better. I found Jim had been trying to get him to talk French so he could hear what it was like, but he said he had been in this country so long and had so much trouble, he'd forgot it. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.